Daniel chapter 3. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn there at this time. We saw in Daniel chapter 2, this, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which is an important part of understanding Daniel chapter 3. So just to remind us, get our brains kind of rolling along with where it needs to be. Uh, don't forget that statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed was a dream that God sent to Nebuchadnezzar to show him the future of the world, really, the world and its kingdoms. And Daniel, you know, interpreted that dream, showing him the head of gold of this giant statue that was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the arms of silver, which were the Medes and the Persians that would come after the Babylonians. All this prophetically speaking in those times. Uh, the belly of brass would be Alexander the Great, the Greeks. But as it turns out, the last two legs there, the Roman Empire of uh, East and West Rome, but then there's that time stop because Israel ceases during the Roman Empire. Um, but in the last days, there would come out of the legs, these feet, part iron, part clay, and these 10 toes. And in the times of those kingdoms, of the 10 toes and those kings um, would come this you know, stone cut without hands out of the mountain and it would roll down the mountain and smash all the kingdoms of the world. And that stone would then set up an everlasting kingdom. So really it's the whole thing right up until where Christ comes. Christ is the stone cut without hands that'll come and smite the nations of the world, battle of Armageddon. From that point on, Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And so this is really God giving Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that was powerful and important to the whole future of the world. This was a big deal. Well, you fast forward about 23 years. Now, again, that's the debatable number, by the way. There's, uh, that's more of the consensus of what scholars believe. About 23 years later, we see Nebuchadnezzar build a statue of his own, only this time it's no arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, but he builds a, a statue of pure gold. And we're gonna see that tonight. And, and what's his point? What do you think he's thinking? Well, as we look at Daniel chapter three, hopefully tonight we'll be able to kind of discern uh, what, what, what Nebuchadnezzar's doing and what, what happens in our own hearts. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he thinks he's all that. He's about, about as prideful as it gets. And his hubris is, is kind of alarming when you kind of see, uh, especially coming up in the next chapter, we're gonna see even more of that. But um, let's take a look here at Daniel chapter three. And I'm gonna divide this chapter into oh, seven or eight chunks to help us kind of divide out what's happening. The first section of this is, is what we're gonna see is a sinful king. That's number one, if you're taking notes, a sinful king. And that's gonna be verses one through seven. Let's take a look. It says in chapter three, verse one, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, a couple things here that you should note. Notice here um, that the, uh, the, the, the cubits measured out here are, you know, as it says here in King Jimmy, you know, three score cubits, which is 60 uh, cubits by six cubits. Um, this is an interesting thing. I, I remember um, when I was in college, I took, I, one of the things I was kind of excited about being an elementary ed major is I knew that I didn't have to take any heavy duty math. You know what I mean? Because as an elementary school teacher, you know, multiplication, division, subtraction, maybe some fractions and stuff, I could do that. But I kind of wanted to avoid any more algebra and stuff like that. So I was really excited about that. Well, my 
teacher, she was a very nice teacher. Unfortunately, she was a really good teacher because uh, otherwise this would have been horrible. But she said, um, you know, our first day of class as teachers in our math department there, she said, I'm going to teach you guys how to teach your students addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and fractions. I was like, check, 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 and check. <laughs> like, I love it. Um, in my mind, that's what I was thinking. But then she said, but because I want you guys to kind of remember what it feels like to sort of be in a place where you don't get it. Instead of using the base 10 system, we're gonna use the base six system. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically your numbers only go up to six. And then after, after you get to six, you get to what, you know, what we would do is you know, going up to, to nine, then you get to 10 and you change it to double digits. Well, that's what you have to do. You go up to six and then it goes up to seven is a double digit number. Are you guys with me on that? It changes the whole equation, literally. Like it really is not easy to think in a basic system. And I remember thinking, Lord, why, you know? Well, what's funny about this, um, did you know the Babylonian numeric system was a base six system? Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and th th there's a lot of things about this that you might notice in the Bible like this. You got this 60 cubits by six, uh, you know, s uh, statue. Um, now tuck that away because I'm gonna show you something at the end hopefully that has to do with that, that is kind of important. But six in the Bible is the number of man, the Bible says. Well, some people say it's the number of Satan. Well, you say that because of Revelation, and, but it is the number of man in the Bible. Number seven, completion and perfection. Number eight is new, new beginnings. Uh, you know, there's, there's numbers in the Bible that mean things and, and seven is kind of the, the number of the Bible. It seems to be used as God's number in many ways. But six is the number of man, and, and that, we're gonna see how that plays out here. But notice, this is a 60 by six uh, statue as far as cubits go, um, which is part of that base six system. That's kind of important. And we note that it's 100% gold. Um, that's what he makes it out of. Uh, so he's got a lot of gold uh, to spare, it seems, uh, this golden statue. Uh, by the way, uh, this is a freebie for you. It's chiseled in some, you know, one of those, uh, what do they call those stones? Kind of the cylinder stones that they found in Babylon. There's a story of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how I told you like to poke people's eyes out, fry them on grills, stuff like that. One, one such story that's etched in stone is Nebuchadnezzar had one of his enemies who was trying to take over his power. And, um, and the, the stone says that Nebuchadnezzar said off with his head, and they chopped off his head and then he had it, his head dipped in gold uh, and then uh, let it sort of settle. And then he put the head of gold of his enemy uh, as it was beheaded there in his uh, palace so that all could see, don't mess with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the head of gold makes you wonder, was Nebuchadnezzar thinking, you know, maybe uh, of the head of gold or the, at least the attempt at a head of gold and taking his position? Like if you know the story biblically, it's kind of an interesting little thing that he did. Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty twisted dude, just to say the least. But all that to say, he makes a statue of pure gold um, and, and this is the sinful king that we see before us. The statue, I think, is an attempt Jot this down in your notes. It was an attempt to change the word of God. That's what was going on here, I believe. He said, I don't believe in this statue that God, your God, Daniel. This took him 23 years to get here, but he's at this place where he's saying, I just don't, I'm gonna deny that. I'm gonna say, let's just go all gold because my kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. My kingdom will never be taken by anyone. 
And by the way, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it seemed like that would be the future. I mean, they, you know, Babylon was seemingly impenetrable by this time. So, you know, he makes this statue of, of, of gold and it's set up in the plains of Dura. Now, this is a fun one because I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s, you know, colleges and universities and the professors, so-called, were uh, one of their big boasts was, we know there was no place called the plains of Dura anywhere near Babylon. And they boasted of this for quite some time. And it was in the 1960s, I believe, they were doing some kind of archeological dig um, and they found this, this amazing part of the ancient Babylonian civilization, not far from Babylon, and they found this huge uh, um, sort of uh, platform, uh, and on it was etched the words, Plains of Dura. Um, and once again, archaeological digs shut the mouths of the cynics and the critics, and I believe that's the way it always is going to be. There's still things that the critics say, well, the Bible must be wrong on this and must be wrong on that. As the archeological digs keep going, the Bible just keeps being confirmed over and over and over again. If anybody was an honest scholar, you'd kind of throw your hands up and go, yeah, the Bible kind of gets it right every time. Uh, but there's not a lot of honest scholars out there willing to do that yet. But, you know, uh, just stay tuned. Uh, remember when Jesus said, you know, if, if, you, if, if I make these people stop crying out, Hosanna, even the rocks will cry out. And my argument is the rocks are crying out archeologically that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But that's a whole nother story. We've got here a sinful king and we continue to see his behavior in uh, the next verses. He goes on in verse two. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king set, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the de uh, dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the councils, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image uh, that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Who set up this image? Good. <laughs> and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Who set up the image? <laughs> I'm being ridiculous on purpose, uh, and there's more of this where we come from. Check it out. Um, so, so uh, now, by the way, uh, these, these guys here, these rulers, princes, sheriff, all these guys, these are the leaders of all of Babylon. There would, be, there would have been hundreds and hundreds of these guys, um, uh, and they're all gathered together. But you gotta remember, they're all under Nebuchadnezzar. As an absolute monarch, he can kind of tell them to do whatever he wants them, you know, uh, whatever he wants them to do, they have to do it. And so this is the decree, verse four. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Who set it up? Nebuchadnezzar. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth all the same hour shall be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Who set it up? Yeah, you never, see, you guys are getting this. Um, over and over and over in the Bible, it says Nebuchadnezzar, the one he set up. Um, and this is an interesting thing because um, I wonder how many times we like to set up our image. 
We're into our image, and I'd say more than ever. Uh, you know, it used to be kind of a more abstract thing, but today it's very, very concrete when you look at people's, you know, Instagram account and their Facebook account and what's the image that they have. And you know what's funny is it's, it's really interesting to watch the, the, the gap between reality and a person's, you know, uh, online social media account. And uh, I, I sort of crack up sometimes, because um, man, you can make yourself look really powerful and good and smart uh, for just a few seconds with, a, with an Instagram uh, entry. But, uh, but it's funny, you know, sometimes I think we wanna set up, and by the way, scholars believe that Nebuchadnezzar said it, it was an image of himself. Um, this golden image was probably an image of himself. These kings of that period loved to set up images and have statues carved and stuff that would look very much like them themselves. And that's probably what was going on here. They were worshiping him as sort of a God king kind of idea. And when he says, oh, nations, tongues, and languages, this is all the people that the Babylonians conquered and assimilated. This was a checkpoint really where those nations would have to show their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. So this was kind of a big deal in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. It's an image of him. And if you're not gonna bow down to this, of course you'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. Like that's the plan. So you've got this sinful king wanting to set up his image. And be careful, folks. I think, you know, um, Jesus gave us the model, didn't he? When he came and it says, he came, Philippians chapter two, and he made himself of no reputation. That's an interesting uh, thing to do. Why would Jesus say, I'm, gonna, I'm not even gonna worry about my reputation. I'm, I'm gonna make myself of no reputation. Well, how many followers did Jesus have? Uh, clicking on Instagram. Well, yeah, he had 12 followers, followers and they weren't that great of followers. Like uh, those followers didn't have very many followers. They weren't influencers. They would become that. But it's so funny how Jesus made himself of no reputation. And what are we about? Making ourselves of a major reputation. Um, and we do that. And we worry about what people think about us and stuff like that. Um, that's more of a worldly, sort of a godless kind of thing to do. And this, this uh, sinful king is into his image and he's wanting to be exalted and he's wanting to be popular and he's wanting to be liked. Some people argue that Nebuchadnezzar by this point in his life wanted just to be loved. But when you're the kind of king that says off with your head and you start you know, chopping heads off and dipping them in gold and stuff, people aren't your friend. Oh, they'll respect you. But you know there is a thing by the way, historically where some of these great powerful kings throughout the ages, there's a, there's a thing where these guys, all they wanted to be is loved, but they never were. Um, by the way, Herod the Great was one of those guys. He was, he was a guy during the time of Christ, you know, and, he, and people don't understand why he rebuilt the temple or remodeled the temple in Jerusalem, and he did a glorious job. Herod the Great built amazing things. Um, if you go to Masada, Herod the Great built that. Um, it's an amazing building feat. You construction people should check it out. It's amazing. In Bible times, what they built there on this cliff side of Masada, it's amazing. Uh, but he also built um, the Herod Herodian, which, which was a little bump. And Herod the Great stood on the bump and he said, I want to be able to see Jerusalem from this mountain. And they're like, yeah, but it needs to be like uh, 3,000 feet high and, or you know, 3,500 feet high. Uh, and, and he's like, exactly. How are we gonna get the dirt? We'll take all my slaves, all you know, 10,000 of them and start having them haul dirt. And if you go to the Herodian out in the middle of nowhere, well, near Bethlehem, there it looks like an anthill. Suddenly this huge mountain was built by slaves and Herod the Great put his palace on top of it and just high enough where you can look into Jerusalem, which is like 10 miles away. You can look into Jerusalem from the Herodian. And that's where they buried Herod the Great there. They found his sarcophagus and his bones and the whole thing. It's there in the Israel Museum. But 
Um, the reason he did all this stuff was he wanted to be sort of liked and loved by the Jews. Even though he was kind of evil and horrible and did all kinds of bad things, um, sometimes these guys felt a little lonely and sad and they wanted to be loved. And so they would try to force people to like them. And that never really worked. People believe Nebuchadnezzar was kind of at that place where you know everybody fears him. He's the most powerful man in the world and he can say off with your head. And now he's like, okay, bow down and worship the image of me and you know, love me, but this, this isn't the way you do it. And you and I know that, but we do the same thing when we try to have people look at our image, look at us, look what we've done. And sometimes the person that doesn't realize how stupid that is, is the person who's trying to pump, puff themselves up. Everybody sees it, the pride, the hubris, the kind of the, the over the top kind of, you know, thinking I'm amazing and I, I want everybody to think I'm amazing. And everybody's like, yeah, you really want people to think you're amazing. That's Nebuchadnezzar's problem. And that's the problem of many today. One thing to maybe look at our, you know, interaction, if you're on social media, um, is to maybe look at how do you esteem others on your social media? How do you, uh, you know, encourage others and not make yourself look like what it's all about? Uh, how smart you are or how correct you are or any of this stuff, but you know, preferring others, esteeming others, that might be a good step in moving away from a prideful uh, you know, uh, air, air about yourself. Well, that's the sinful king. He's full of all kinds of pride and uh, that's gonna be worked out of him eventually because God is able to work prideful arrogance out of a person and we're gonna see that happen quite practically. But we have a sinful king wanting to be worshiped. Now, before we move on to the next section, um, the, uh, the instruments that are listed here, uh, you might say, yeah, whatever. Uh, these are Bible instruments, the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer. What are these instruments? Well, some of them are kind of what they sound like. Um, you know, the, the, for example, the harp was a harp. Um, but what's a sackbut? What's a psaltery? And what's a, the dulcimer, you know, um, which is kind of an interesting uh, word um, that means singing symphony which is kind of an interesting thing. We, we don't know exactly what this dulcimer, that we do have modern day dulcimers, but it's probably not that, even though it's called that. The reason it gets tricky is because, and here's where it gets controversial, and, and you'd, you'd be shocked at what the critics, the cynics of the book of Daniel, remember I told you Daniel's the target, but because the critics hate Daniel because of its prophecy, and they try to you know, pass it off as a forgery, and we've been through all that, uh, why it's not a forgery. One of their little nitpicky arguments is say, see, it's a forgery. It had to have been written after the Greek empire. And here's why. Many of these uh, words that were originally written here, you know, in this section of Daniel, if you remember, it's written in what language, anybody? Aramaic, that's right. Um, most of the Old Testament's Hebrew. Uh, Daniel is Hebrew up until Daniel chapter two, verse four, the second part of that verse. And then it shifts to Aramaic. Now we're in Aramaic. But suddenly in this, verse seven and verse five, the, the instrument listed are listed as Greek words of Greek instruments. And so the critics say, see, this had to have been written after the Greek empire. Um, sounds logical, sounds very academic and stuff like that. Here's the problem. Did you know when Nebuchadnezzar was on the scene, the Greeks existed. They just weren't a mighty empire yet. Um, th this is, this is a, not even hard to defend. Um, there were Greek people speaking Greek and there were Greek instruments. It's just, they hadn't become great yet. Um, it would take the Mede and Persian empire to come and go and then the Greeks would come and they'd take over the known world at that time. 
Um, but just because they hadn't taken over the world doesn't mean they didn't exist. Are you guys with me on that? So don't let your college professor say, see, Daniel's a forgery because the Greek empire hadn't come into power yet. You can say, I agree, they haven't come to power yet, but they existed. Do your history. Uh, the Greeks existed and it'd be no hard thing to picture uh, the Babylonians having Greek instruments uh, from, their, from their conquests uh, during the time of the Babylonian Empire. That would not be even a hard stretch of the imagination that Greek instruments would have made their way. Um, we'll, we'll show you that. In fact, let me, let me show you something about the Jewish instruments. Um, what were the Jewish instruments doing during this time of captivity? Did you know there's a Psalm in the book of Psalms that actually tells us what the Jewish instruments were doing? and what the musicians were doing while they're in Babylon. Uh, keep your finger here and flip over to Psalm 137. Go over back there with me real quick. I think this is interesting. Um, the psalmist here, we don't know exactly who this psalmist is, but it was one of the Jews. Psalm 137 is one of the Jews that was in captivity or maybe after they were in captivity recording what they were doing with their musicianship and their worship and all that during the captivity. Um, and that's what it says here in one, Psalm 137, verse one. It says there, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they, that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Here we see the musicians saying, man, we were gonna hang it up. Uh, have you ever felt, have you musicians, have you ever felt like hanging it up? Uh, there's times in your life you're kind of like, I'm done. Uh, I, I, I'm not very good. Um, sometimes I feel like hanging it up when you see on YouTube a three-year-old that can play the guitar better than the best guitar player that I know. It's like, this is discouraging. How does this three-year-old do this? Um, and he's like, whatever, I'm not playing ever again. Um, well, these guys were in Babylon saying, we're hanging up our harps on the willow trees, but the Babylonians, interestingly enough, said, play us one of your songs from you know, Zion. And they would have to, by force, play their songs. Did you know this happened, by the way, in the Holocaust? The Germans would make these amazing musicians, violinists and pianists. There was a, an amazing movie called, I think it was called The Pianist, um, that was an amazing telling of that very thing. The Germans would often want the Jews, whether they were in the concentration camp or a slave or whatever, they would get them with their violins or their, because there was all these amazing musicians taken up in the Holocaust and, and the, the, the Nazis would make them play music. Same, same exact thing as the Babylon. So here we know the Jews are sitting there, sitting down with their harps hanging on the willows, um, but the Babylonians would make their conquested people, you know, play music. And that's what's going on with these Greek instruments. I don't mean to belabor this point, but don't let your college professors pull a fast one and say, see, this is why the book of Daniel's a forgery, because they said sackbutt, or psaltery, or dulcimer, whatever. Uh, don't, don't get caught up on that. Uh, but it is interesting, musically, they're gonna play songs and then everybody's gonna bow down. Boy, we could talk about music and worshiping music today. Uh, do, do, does our society worship music and musicians? 
Um, it's an amazing thing how we, we have to be careful. Uh, it's a form of idolatry. Uh, maybe you're an American idolatry fan. Uh, um, I don't know, but be careful. Uh, it, is, it is something that Satan still uses. Satan himself was an instrument, uh, seems as we looked at when we were in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, we talked about that. Well, that brings us to the second section. Um, first, we start out with a sinful king. Secondly, we have a snitching colleague or a, a bunch of snitching colleagues, you might say. Um, nobody likes the snitching colleague, right? I don't think you, should, I don't think you do, uh, but you sound like you like them. Um, well, let's see what a snitching colleague looks like. It says in verse eight, wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans, now who are the Chaldeans? They were sort of actually the smartest and the, and the priests. They were kind of the, 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 the um, and, and, and sort of in charge. They were, they were like uh, maybe the top level of all these wise men and stuff like that. So the Chaldeans, it says, came near and accused the Jews. And they spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the salt, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, um, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee they, have, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image thou hast set up. This is a, a really, you know, um, evil, slimy thing for these Chaldeans to do. You, you get a sense of sort of, uh, you know, they're trying to get at these guys, these Jewish kids that were put in charge of the province of Babylon. Who put them in charge? If you remember Daniel. Daniel was kind of one of the head guys of this whole group. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we saw in verse 49 of chapter two, um, Daniel requested the king and said, hey, will you take these three guys and I want them right under me, helping me as I lead. And so they did. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are high up level dudes. And so these guys, these Chaldeans are like, um, yeah, the guys that you know, you've put up in charge of the province of Babylon, look, they're unwilling uh, to, to uh, to bow down. Now, by the way, um, how do we respond, by the way, uh, to, to those that oppose us? How do you respond? You know, the snitching colleague, these are guys that just have it out for them. And um, it's an interesting thing because we're living in a day where um, there's, there's some of this going on. And, and the Bible talks about in the last days that, the, you know, there'd be a love that would be lost. And people would turn on each other. Even family members in the last days will turn on one another. I remember, do you remember last year, last Thanksgiving, when uh, our governor basically said, you know, if anybody's having Thanksgiving dinner, you are to report them, you know, and tell the, their, their, you know, the neighbors, or the neighbors had some people over to their house for dinner. Uh, you know, they're, they're murderers. Uh, mark them with a, you know, a COVID mark somewhere or something. Like it was, it started to feel a little weird uh, when our governor said that, you know, snitch on your neighbors. Um, and uh, we, we've seen that. There's kind of this weird, you know, snitching. I have some friends that were up, uh, up on Mount Hood the other day, and uh, they just went out and looked at, you know, by Timberline Lodge, they're walking out in the open air, and this lady came up to them and said, you're supposed to be wearing masks. And, you know, the wind was blowing, <laughs> it was a sunny, beautiful day, and they were like 40 feet from the nearest people, and this lady just totally freaked out. And, um, and 
you know, the guys, the dads of this, these two families just kind of, they said, yeah, whatever. They kind of went in, used the restroom. Well, the lady started snapping pictures of the, of the children. Uh, snap, 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 snap. And saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna report you guys, I'm gonna report you guys. It was like just craziness, you know? Um, but uh, it, it's gotten weird. It's gotten really, really, really weird. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's those that are opposing you today and, and, and for various reasons. Um, and, and we have to be careful as Christians because, um, you know, a lot of people are asking me and, and the church, Pastor Brett, you know, when do we stand up? And when don't we stand up? Well, here's the problem. Uh, when it comes to things biblical, man, I'll give you a very clear answer. Um, and I love that part. Uh, um, when the Bible is silent though, I think we should be careful not to try to speak for the Bible when the Bible is silent on something. So we have some I interesting issues, um, you know, about vaccinations and stuff like that. And, um, and here's the problem. I can't make a biblical case for vaccines or against vaccines, a pro or, or against. Um, and, um, and here's the thing, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but here's, here's what's troubling to me is when people start making people do stuff with their bodies, especially the same people that say, you know, my body, my choice, like the same people are saying certain things. And it makes me a little nervous when people are saying, science, you guys need to follow science. And they're the same people that believe science says that there's no male nor female, there's an infinite number of genders. When I can say scientifically, I can prove there's male and female, like biologically, the same people are screaming at us uh, to believe in science. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's a troubling day. And some of that I can sort through with the Bible. Like, is there a male and a female? Yes, the Bible says there's male and female. No duh, that's a no brainer. Um, abortion, totally sinful, wrong. Uh, there's, it's not a political issue, it's a biblical God issue, or the issues of abortion. Um, but when it comes to the other things, um, here's the thing, you, know, you might even ask, let's, go, let's take it back to the American Revolution. People forget, you know, why we had the American Revolution. It was taxation without representation, don't tread on me. It wasn't religious freedom. That's why our, you know, founders came, uh, you know, over on the Mayflower. They came over for religious freedom to escape persecution and what have you. But the founding of our nation and the rebellion against the British was largely taxation without representation and kind of the oppression of a king on people that weren't being represented. And so, um, the, you know, people stood up and fought. And you know, it's an interesting philosophical debate. Uh, I'll just tell you personally, my, my secret of persuasion, I'm glad they did. I'm glad we beat the British. <laughs> glad we did that. Now here's the problem. Can you make a biblical case? Because some of you would say, wait, Romans 13, you're supposed to obey the rulers and do what the, the law enforcement, you know, and, and see, that's where you have to start, you know, saying, okay, well, wait, they were the authority, but there was an unrighteous authority that was being oppressive against the people. And, and that's where you have to pray and seek the Lord and say, Lord, what are we to do during these difficult times? I do believe our founders in, you know, those that were part of the putting together of our constitution, the Declaration of Independence, un, uh, you know, the, the, there's a whole group out there that's trying to say they were a bunch of deists, they didn't believe in God, that's hogwash. I've done whole sermons on the Christianity of our founders and it's all over the place. They're trying to erase that, by the way, all over Washington and the monuments and all that, they're trying to erase our Christian heritage. But, um, but all that to say, I hope you understand there's some things you just need to pray and say, Lord, is this something that I'm supposed to be a part of, fighting the good fight? Or is this something I should be praying about? Is this something that we should be standing up for or not? And, and um, whether you're looking for a you know, biblical answer for the vaccine, um, 
I have a hard time with that because uh, I'm thankful for some vaccines. I really am, some in history. Well, Brett, don't you know abortion in 1970, the fetus and da, da, da. I know I've studied all this stuff. Don't get all mad at me. Um, calm down, chill out. I understand some of that was horrible and, and there were some horrible things done in our history and stuff like that, even to get certain vaccines. Not all the vaccines are like that. But, but here's the thing, you have to say, Lord, you know, show us where to stand up. And, and I'm really thankful, I'm thankful that there are people that are called to stand bold and stand strong on things that maybe the church is not called to stand bold and strong on. One thing I, I kind of chuckle is when people are saying, the church needs to stand up saying this, and the church needs to stand up saying that. And I would just say, be careful on that one. Um, because you see the church, especially Athey Creek, we're here to stand on the, the word of God and say, here's what the Bible teaches. If you wanna know what the Bible says, you can talk to Athey Creek, we'll do our best to point you in the right direction and show you what the scriptures say. If you wanna know what your political persuasion should be and what you should fight for and stuff like that, you need to seek the Lord and say, Lord, is this something we should stand for? On the things that are no-brainers, abortion, how we treat the nation Israel, like these are things that are actually in the Bible that very clearly speak. But be careful, folks, standing on certain things and making other people stand on stuff that, like you show me a scripture and a verse, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk. That's, that's kind of what we have to be careful about. I know that's not, you know, some people might say that's weak. But at the same time, I'm thankful there are strong people standing up. I still have political opinions and persuasions, and many of you know that. Um, uh, but at the same time, Athey Creek's not the platform and the churches shouldn't be the platform to try to persuade people on political issues purely. We gotta persuade people on biblical issues. By the way, if there's one thing I'm gonna offend people on, here's what I really, if I'm gonna offend somebody at Athey Creek, here's what I hope that are, is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because listen to this, um, you, you show somebody who's pro-abortion and pro this and pro that that's anti-biblical, the first thing we need to do is get them saved. We gotta show them Jesus and repentance of sin. We gotta show what sin is. And we gotta show them that. Too many people try to clean the fish before you catch the fish. You can't clean the fish until you catch the fish. And that's one of the mistakes people make, you see. Um, so, so this idea of civil disobedience is kind of a tricky one. Um, but I love it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Benno, they're on good ground. Why? Because they know. They've got, a, they got some scripture that says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the idea of bowing down and worshiping uh, the statue in Babylon, no brainer. Time for civil disobedience, even if it costs you your life. That's a no brainer. Getting vaxxed or not? I don't know. I can't really show you a scripture. Thou shalt not vaccinate. I don't see that. Um, well, Brett, thou shalt not uh, do whatever they want to my body. Well, as it turns out, uh, there's a lot of Christians that had their bodies sawn in half and nailed to trees and hung from ropes and, and burned it with acid. And uh, like, like we could go on of what happened to Christians' bodies. Um, it's, a it's a tricky one. So seek the Lord, pray, be careful. Um, but uh, as a church goes, we're gonna point people to Christ. We're gonna point people to what the Bible teaches. Um, whether people like that or not, it's, it's kind of the way it is. So all that to say, the snitching calling. By the way, um, how do we respond to those who are opposing us? I love what 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 24 through 25 tells us. Um, this tells us what to do. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. Um, the newer translations, I think, say um, quarrel. 
Um, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel or, or strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Um, by the way, apt to teach, I love that. I love people that are out there instructing rather than yelling. Um, we have people in our church that are very effectively online, social media, instructing. They're not yelling, they're just, they're just telling people, here's what you need to watch. I love that. Um, so, you know, uh, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, in meekness. Uh, how are we doing with that? By the way, meekness is not weakness. I hope you don't think meekness is weakness. Biblical meekness is power and strength under control. Um, the, one of the ancient uh, definitions that is kind of used to talk about meekness is, is that of a horse. A horse is a powerful beast. I love when you see these muscular horses, you know, and they're, they're running and you just see power. But you know, just that little bridle, the little bit, just it, it keeps the horse under control. You know, that horse could kill that person if they wanted to, buck them off, stamp them out. But, but, and that almost happened to me several times when I was a kid. That's why I rode dirt bikes instead. Um, but uh, we had a, a 16 hands horse that was an old ranch horse that was this huge beast. And every time I got on that thing, it bucked me off. But, um, but, but as it turned out, um, you know, that's what meekness is, strength and power like a horse, but under control. And that's what the Lord wants of you. And the Lord does give you certain strength and power, but meekness means Jesus is, the only autobiographical statement Jesus made of himself was, I am meek and lowly. That's, only, that's the only thing Jesus said about his personality. So teaching them in patience, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Boy, don't you get that feeling that people are opposing themselves with their little arguments? Like they don't even, ah, I don't wanna get off on that. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's the goal. We want people to repent and acknowledge the truth. And the truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 as it relates to how we deal with those or respond to those who oppose us. And remember, um, even if faith responds rather than reacts. That was one of our points, points last Sunday. And the Bible gives us the way we're supposed to respond right here, 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25. But be that as it may, we see here, um, you know, the, the, the snitching colleagues, they're, they're the people that are uh, opening their mouths against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And by the way, the Lord's gonna shut their mouths. Um, and I love that. Um, the Lord has a way of doing that. You might feel like we're losing the, 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 you know, the war on truth, if you would, but all the mouths will be shut at some point and uh, the truth will win. That, that's just the truth of the matter. Well, that brings us to the next section here of our, uh, of our chapter. Um, now we have a second chance, verses 13 uh, through 15. And it's a second chance really to sin. That's what I'm gonna say about this. It's like, okay, you missed the first chance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're gonna give you this second chance on this. Can I just tell you before we read this that the enemy will do that to you? Be careful. I've seen it where, you know, you have victory in an area of sin that you struggle with. And you're like, yes, I, I did it. And then just at the right time, he brings it back around and tempts you once again at a moment of weakness. Um, I like that these guys are determined, a little bit like Daniel of chapter one, where it says he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. Um, that's the way we as Christians need to be. Not just, uh, just say, no, I'm not gonna do that. Say, just say, never. Purpose in your heart. Because these guys, they, the first time, do you ever wonder if, if Abednego said to Shadrach, um, okay, we made it, man, awesome. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, 
are you kidding me? Is it true? And, and do you think Shadrach and Meshach, are we going to stick to this thing uh, this time? Are, are we not bowing down, guys? Uh, you, you wonder, was there any doubt at all? I think not, just from the answer that they gave. But I know I'd be like, wow, we made it through the first time. Now what are we going to do? Um, well, the second chance to sin is right here in verse 13. Then it says, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Um, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready at that, what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, does it ever crack you up that they name each instrument every time? It's like, go see a concert. Man, are you excited to go see the guitar player, the drummer, the bass player, the camp piano? <laughs> you mean the band? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this, this just kind of cracks me up. All of them say this over and over again. Um, I guess they have time on their hands. I don't know. Um, if you be ready when you hear all those instruments and all the kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now they have a second chance to sin. They're given more opportunity to fail. And the enemy wants to do that to you and the world will try to do that to you. If they didn't get you the first time, they're gonna to try to get you the next time. And that's, that's the sad thing. You might have victory the first time, but watch out the second. I think that's sometimes where people fail the most is it's the, the second time through. And these guys were men of purpose. But I, I love this. Um, you know, this, we, we looked at this two Sundays ago, this statement, is it true? And it's, there's a shocked value. Nebuchadnezzar's shocked. What, are you kidding that you're not gonna do this? Because he thought it was reasonable that they do this. And the world might think of some of the things that they're trying to push down your throat as reasonable and they might be shocked. And we looked at that two Sundays ago and how we need to be careful. Even though they're shocked, it doesn't mean we should cave to just do what the world says. Uh, second chance to sin. And they'll give them many more chances, by the way, um, and then we saw on last Sunday, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And later in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is gonna say, man, there's no one who can stay the hand of God. He's gonna have to learn this lesson. We looked at that on Sunday. Well, verse 16 uh, brings us to the next section uh, from a second chance. Um, uh, um, by the way, James, I forgot this part. James 1, uh, 2 and 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire or mature, wanting for nothing. One of the things that uh, I love about this is it reminds us that we need to endure the temptations that come our way, being patient in those temptations. Um, and let, let patience work in us. Um, later on in James chapter one, verse 12, it says, you know, the, um, the man, blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he has tried or tested, he will receive the crown of life, which is promised to those who love the Lord. Like there's a promise to those that endure the various temptations that come. And I like that. And that's how we, how we do this. So now we come to this, uh, this next section. Um, it's verses, you know, um, uh, 16 through 18, and it's the solid answer that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give. Let's look. 
It says in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, or New American Standard, even if, I think uh, NIV says the same thing. Even if he doesn't, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Who set it up? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, that's right. Just make sure we're on, on board here. Um, now, what I love about this, the solid answer that's given, they did not have faith in deliverance, but faith in God's will. That's, that's a real key. They didn't have faith in deliverance, they had faith in God's will. And that's what we talked about on Sunday. We looked at these three verses Sunday, and man, if you missed that, that might be one of the more important teachings we've done in a long, long time. I think we're living in days where Christians need this even if kind of faith displayed here. They were not doubt, doubting God's ability, but they were submitting to God's sovereignty. Um, that's the key right there. And I love that about these guys. Uh, so we looked at that on Sunday, uh, a solid, solid answer. Um, um, now, uh, the next one on our list, uh, number, what are we on? Number five, number five, we have a smoldering Babylonian. Okay, a little humor in our list here. Uh, uh, smoldering Babylonian, yeah, check it out, verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now pause for a second, how mad was he? I get a sense from this narrative that he was like, his look, have you ever seen somebody so mad they look like a different person? Uh, ugly mad. Um, we already read in verse 13, back when the story was still fresh, Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they said, we don't even have to answer you in this, but we will. And now after what they said, in his rage and fury, he was full of fury, filled with fury, and the form of his visage was changed. In other words, when he looked at them, man, his eyeballs were popping, his neck veins were bulging. He was probably purple, different colors of shades of red or whatever. He was furious with these guys. Um, and you always do stupid stuff when you're at that, by the way. Um, I remember in football, uh, one of the things you'd learn is the opponent, oftentimes the, 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 the talented ones would just try to make you mad. Because if they got you really, really mad, um, you often played horribly. You thought you were, you know, you're gonna really cow him. But they, there was one guy I played against, um, and he lives locally here. He was a state champion uh, football player, and it was, a, it was an honor to play against him. I was excited, because he was 240 pounds, ran a 4640 in high school, and benched over 400 pounds. And he was the guy I was playing head to head. I watched films for a week before the, the game, and he just grabbed guys and fling them out of the way and then get the quarterback. Like it was like, see, 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 bodies flying. I was like, and I was a junior, he was a senior, and I was, I was just, you know, uh, you know, thinking this is gonna be, but, but the one thing that I was mostly amazed at, not was his, um, his athletic acumen as much, but his intimidation. Here's, here's, this is true. He would, you'd, you'd, you'd block him, and you know, I was crab blocking him, because I couldn't go like head to head against this guy, so I was taking out his legs the whole night, trying to. And, uh, but it was successful for the most part. And, um, and he would end up kind of in this big pile and I'd be at the bottom of the pile. It was a painful game, you know, just <laughs> bottom of the pile every time. He would grab your skin and just start twisting as you're under the pile, just twisting, twist, twist, twist. And I'd be like, and then, and then they're true. Like we would be under the pile, he'd kind of go poof, poof, poof while we we're just under the pile. Now it wasn't hurting really, but it was just, he was just trying to get in my head. Uh, he was a real pro, uh, this guy. Uh, but, but 
I've learned, even in life, that's what the enemy wants to do, he wants to make you so mad. Nebuchadnezzar's so mad, he does stupid stuff now. And so who's the smoldering Babylonian? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he's in rage of fury, he's smoldering, but literally we're gonna have a smoldering Babylonian, check it out. So it says his rage is, uh, you know, form and visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, middle of verse 19. Therefore, he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Um, verse 20. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their, uh, their coats with their pantyhosen uh, and uh, no, the word hosen there is probably better translated hats. They were wearing some kind of hats. Um, so then their men, they're bound in their coats with their hats and their, uh, and, and their hats, um, uh, that would be like turbans. Um, uh, the, the garments here, you could do a whole study on these garments that they're wearing, um, but they're not really wearing like pantyhose if you were thinking that from the King James. Uh, their coats, hosen, their hats with their other garments and were cast into the midst of the uh, burning fire furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who took up Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. So the soldiers that threw them in perished. Notice with me, they were the most mighty men of his whole army. Uh, the SEAL Team Six guys of the Babylonian army. Get those guys. Those are the ones who were burned up. I think this is important because really all throughout the Bible, the critics of the Bible like to try to say stuff. Well, we know this wasn't a miracle. Like there's commentaries that are actually interesting. Um, William Barclay, maybe you've heard of Barclay commentaries have been around for a long time. He says some good stuff. You have to kind of pick through it, but he's always trying to diminish the miracles. Uh, and I don't know why people try to do that. It's, it's totally hogwash. Like Barclay talks about when Jesus fed the 5,000, there was five loaves and two fishes. But what actually happened, it was a miracle where God just moved the hearts. People had bread hidden in their sleeves and fish. And they were, when, when it came time, there was, people just decided to share. And by the time there was uh, a bunch, no, no, that's not what happened. People always try to explain. Maybe you're in your college, there's still goofy professors trying to claim, uh, even in Christian universities, trying to claim that it wasn't really the Red Sea that the, the uh, children of Israel passed. It was just a little typo in the Bible, the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea is only about six inches deep of water kind of a marsh and the people went across the Reed Sea. It wasn't really this big blasting of God's nostrils and, you know, not Ten Commandment movie, none of that. It's just the Reed Sea. I heard the story of a guy who was in the, one of these classes where the professor said, it was the Reed Sea and it was only six. The guy in the back, praise the Lord. And the professor was like, what? Praise the Lord, he said. And he's like, what are you saying that? It's just six inches of water. And he said, yeah, that's an amazing miracle. He says, no, it's not. They just walked in. He says, it's a miracle. The whole Egyptian army drowned in only six inches of water. <laughs> I love that. Um, a lot of times these Bible miracles, you know, well, the, the fire wasn't really that hot. They were just walking on some coals like these people do, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't really that hot. And they were, they were you know, somehow they were, but no, it was so hot that the guys throwing them in perished. And it was the toughest of all the men of Babylon. Like I love how the Bible likes to work, you know, seven times hotter. I, I like how the Bible, God seems to like to work with the impossible, um, impossible odds. And you might feel like you're in a place of impossible odds right now. God, that's his expertise. Brett, I'm about to lose my job because of the vaccine issue. God likes to work with the impossible. 
Who knows what the Lord has for you? Even if, even if you lose your job, like we learned on Sunday, could it be that God is doing something greater and bigger? Maybe you need to come work at Athey Creek. We're, we're, we're hurting for staff right now. We just need people. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a job, you might check our website because we could use some help around here as our church is just busting out at the seams and we've got all kinds of things going on. Um, but, but at the same time, I do know there's people that are struggling um, with real things right now. Uh, maybe you have coronavirus. We have people, uh, I'm amazed at some of the people in our church that are in the best shape are the, the worst coronavirus victims. Some of us that are like the people that we're supposed to kick the bucket, we're all doing fine. Um, and we got the corona and we did fine, but it's the people that are in shape. I, I don't know, that's just kind of strange to me. But we have people that are really hurting right now uh, with coronavirus and stuff like that. And um, you know, it's, it's sort of matching the rest of the world and the ratio of people. It's not that we're a super spreader or anything like that. Uh, there's a lot of people that are coming down with coronavirus in these days and the different variants and all the things people are talking about. But some of our people have really gone through some hard, hard stuff. But don't forget the Lord is good at working with the impossible, the harder it is, Sometimes the better the deliverance. The Lord has his, his hand on you. Don't, don't forget, no, no man can pluck you out of the hand of God, John 10 tells us. Well, you got the smoldering Babylonians because they threw them in and they burned up. These guys died. Um, so now this could have been the end of the story. Verse 23, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the burning of the fire furnace to the end. Um, but I love how the end with God is, is um, you never really know when it's over. Uh, you'd say, well, this is over. Uh, I think most of us, if we were watching, oh, that's the end of it, sorry. It's like the Groundhog Day moment where the truck goes down the cliff falling. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, he could be okay still. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> blows up. Like, oh, maybe not anymore. Uh, remember that scene? That's, that's what's happening here. The guy, oh, oh, they're in the fire furnace now. Oh, sorry about that. But it's not over until it's over. Um, and that brings us to the next section, number six on our list of things. After the smoldering Babylonian, um, we have a surprising outcome. I love this, verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished uh, and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors or the governors, did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, true, O king. He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Man, don't you love this? The surprising outcome here is so cool. You know, they, they were saved from the fire and they saw Jesus. That's the biggest surprise. You know, you might've guessed, well, they're gonna be saved from the fire furnace, but who would have guessed that God in the flesh would join them in the fiery furnace? Who would have guessed that one? That's such a huge deal. And again, for you Bible students, when you see an, an, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, and there's several places where we see this, this is called a theophany or a Christophany, whatever you wanna call it, where um, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus uh, shows up in the Old Testament. And there's several of those. Uh, probably some of the most pronounced um, would be, uh, you know, where Abraham's sitting in the tent in the heat of the day, and these two angels with this other third guy comes and Abraham bows down and starts worshiping this guy and the guy receives the worship and he, you basically realize, wait a minute, this is, this is the Lord himself with these two angels. And the two angels went off and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's a, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And there's several of those. Um, you might argue that Joshua, before he went and fought the battle of Jericho, remember the, the Lord shows up and, and he says, are you for us or against them? And he says, no, 
Um, that, that some believe was a appearance of Jesus Christ uh, in his pre-incarnate uh, form. Uh, the priest uh, Melchizedek is one we could talk about. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is that priest after the order of Melchizedek. Great stuff, but be that as it may, this is one of those great moments of the Bible. And basically they were saved uh, in the midst of the fiery furnace. But when do we see the Lord the clearest? We talked about that also on Sunday. It's in the midst of the fiery furnace. And that's why when you're going through difficulties, look for the, the son, look for Jesus. It's like what I was talking about on, on Sunday, First Peter chapter four, verse 12 says, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange things happen to you. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you will be glad also with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. Did you hear that? If you're reproached for the name of Christ. Um, and, and see, that, that gets back to our discussion before. If you're persecuted for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, um, it says you'll be happy. The, the Lord's got a, a far weighty uh, future for you in heaven um, where the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Um, but their part is evil spoken of, but on your part, he will be glorified. I mean, it goes on talking about suffering. So don't think it's strange when you're going through fiery trials, uh, whether it's COVID or being jo job on the line, threatened or what have you, um, be that as it may, let's get to it. Uh, we got the surprising outcome, verses 24 through 25. I love that. Um, so it says here, um, uh, the, the, the four guys were loosed. By the way, another sideline thing, if you have things you're bound up by in this world, um, sometimes it's the trials that the Lord allowed you to go through that'll unbind you. The things that are a problem for you, sometimes the Lord allows a problem to happen to sort of fix the problem that you're already in. And I've seen that happen too, and that's what happens here, great stuff. Well, um, so that's uh, verses 24 and 25. Um, now we go to number seven, a sad understanding. What's the sad understanding? Well, we're gonna see Nebuchadnezzar and the way he sort of sorts this out in his brain, and it's really kind of sad. Um, you might think it's good at first, but it's kind of sad. Let's check it out. It says in verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fire furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God. Already it's starting to sound good, right? Uh, he's changing his tune. Remember he was saying, who is the God that will save you from my hand? Now he's saying, you're the servants of the most high God. I mean, we're in the, stepping in the right direction. Um, he says, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. I think that's my favorite part of the story. They had to be asked to come out of the fiery furnace. Hey, you guys, he had to ask them twice, come forth out of the fire. And he said, come hither. Uh, like he had to ask them to leave the fire furnace. And that's where they wanted to stay, it seems, with Jesus in the fiery furnace. I know Christians who would rather stay in the furnace with Jesus than to have, uh, be out comfortably with everybody else. Well, verse 27, the, the princes, the governors, the captains, the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire passed upon them. Um, and then um, it says in verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants 
that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, language which speaketh anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and make their houses into piles of dunghill. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. In some ways, you almost wish he would have left a period in the middle of verse 29. Um, maybe before the cutting in pieces part, but even if we include that part, it, we should have put the period here. Um, you know, if you, don't, if you say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll be cut into pieces, their house shall be made of dunghill, because there is no other God, period. That's what he should have said, period. But he, he didn't, he said, there's no other God that can deliver after this sort, meaning he still believes in other gods. That's the sad understanding. And we see this today. There are people in your family, there are people you work with that look at your life and say, man, there's something good about you. And I'm really, have you heard this? I'm really glad you found your path. Good for you. But it's not good for me, it's just good for you. That's where Nebuchadnezzar is now in his, in his journey through life. Good for you guys. You have a God you really trust in. Hey, anybody said anything bad about their God? Uh, you know, there, there's other gods, but don't say anything bad about their God uh, or else I'll chop you up and put you in your house in a pile of dung hill. Um, he's just not there yet. He, it's a sad understanding of who God is. You've got to get to a place um, uh, in your life where you realize there is no other God, there's only one. And you also have to get to the place where you realize there's no other way to heaven than that of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but by me. Um, you know, the, the path to destruction, it's wide. The path to eternal life is narrow. People don't like narrow. You Christians are so narrow-minded. Exactly, you're right. Why does God make it so narrow? I'm thankful for that. You, you wanna know why I think the Lord made it narrow? Because we're stupid. If there were many paths, I think we'd all be taking the wrong paths. But the Lord says, I'm gonna make it really, really easy. We'll write this one out in Crayola for you. One way, this, this way. Not that way, not that way, not that way, not that way. Just one way. And I think that's really legit. Like I'm so thankful for the, the singular way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And one of the things that the enemy will do is continue to think, well, there's many paths and I'm glad you found your path. People aren't even saying that as much now if you're a Christian and you're so narrow-minded to say Jesus is the only way, people will hate you for that today. Um, but, but that's the situation. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the sad understanding that he has. It's not a, a legitimate understanding of who God is yet. But we're gonna see him come to the right understanding in the next chapter, we'll see that. Now, before we pack it up, we still have a few more minutes. I've got one more observation in my list of things. Number eight, you can jot this down. Nebuchadnezzar's observation, well, maybe a couple more things. Um, uh, one thing that Nebuchadnezzar does observe accurately was what these guys did, and it's noteworthy. You could do a whole sermon just on these three, these three things. Notice the things that he uh, observes. Number one, he says in verse 28, man, you know, he says to them, the Lord has delivered their servants, and, and this is what they did. They, they trusted in God. 
Um, this is the world looking in at these Christian boys, if you would, or Jewish boys, um, looking and saying, man, look, at, they, at least they trusted their God. That's what you and I should be doing, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The second observation, it says they changed the king's word. Now you might think whatever, but, but you understand this is the king that never has his word changed. If Nebuchadnezzar says it, um, that's the way it is, or off with your head or poke your eyes out or make a golden head out of your head, whatever it is. But they, Nebuchadnezzar saying, you guys did something that nobody's ever done. Change the king's word. And let me just tell you, if you're faithful to God's word and you're going against the flow of this world, um, that's something you and I need to be aware. We're gonna change what the world is doing. We're gonna be different. Any dead fish can go with the flow. You and I are called to go upstream and go a little bit against that, changing the king's word. So they trusted in God, they changed the king's word. And then I love the last one, they yielded their bodies. And this is one of the themes that we've seen, um, being willing to lay down our life if need be, uh, being bold enough and not afraid uh, to uh, worry about what might happen to us um, as Christians. And I think we're living in days where those kinds of things are becoming more and more reality. Um, so you got this sad understanding, even though the king gets those things, um, you got the sad understanding. Now, the final and last uh, point of the evening, you see in this chapter, some scholars suggest, and I think they're accurate, a similarity a, and maybe even a picture of the coming tribulation period. Daniel is a book of stories for sure, but it's also a book of great prophecy. And so it makes us prophecy guys kind of go, wow, there's some amazing correlations to certain things. And remember, one of the things that I'm gonna show you as we continue through the book of Daniel is how the book of Daniel is called the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. And it's also, uh, it's like a, the mutual key. Revelation is the key that unlocks the book of Daniel. Um, I wanna show you how this, is, uh, this story is kind of similar uh, as in the, just a few minutes of doing this, how it's similar to the tribulation period. Remember the seven year period that's coming after the rapture of the church where God's gonna pour out his wrath on a Christ rejecting sinful world. The Jewish nation will be saved during that time. Uh, we'll be up in heaven because of the rapture. That's the way I believe it's gonna shake down. So we see some similarities here in this chapter. So jot these scriptures down. Um, number one is Revelation 17 and 18. If you know your Bible prophecy, during the tribulation period, those two chapters talk about, interestingly enough, religious Babylon and economic Babylon. Do you guys recall that? If you're a Bible buff there in the book of Revelation, during the time of the tribulation, there's gonna be a one world government, a one world religion, and a one world economic system. Globalism is one of the things we talk about quite a bit in our prophecy updates because in the tribulation period, there's gonna be a globalism that is realized and it's, it's what they're trying to do right now. Um, and, and this is where you can start seeing reasons for mandates of vaccines and, and the world kind of coming together with all their stuff. Um, you can see globalism and, and some of that being really pushed by so many. And by the way, this current president is a globalist. Um, and, and I've done whole teachings and shown how we have a, and they would even admit it. I'm not arguing one political side versus the other. I'm just saying what is, is we are now globalists uh, with this administration. Uh, and Trump was not a globalist. Uh, I forget which prophecy update uh, we were talking about, but um, Trump's kind of the opposite of globalist and uh, the current administration is very much globalist. And, and that's, that's just, the point is, the, the tribulation period is gonna include religious and economic Babylon, um, and it's gonna be a global situation. Um, and, 
And, and the reason I say that is because we're talking about the, the, the city of Babylon in ancient times. We're in the same sort of place that the Bible sort of links to in the last days of Babylon. So, there, so we, we should have that hint of a link right there. Now, if you flip over to the book of Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 13 real quick. We'll just have you flip back there. Revelation 13. So the first one, Revelation 17, 18, you can write next to that maybe, um, you know, um, religious and economic Babylon. There's a link to ancient Babylon as far as the picture of the future. But Revelation 13, verses 14 through 18, what is gonna happen? Well, let's read this. Check, check out if you see any similarity to Daniel chapter three. In Revelation 13, verses 14 through 18, it says, and uh, he will deceive them um, that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which had power to do in the sight of the beast. Um, the beast is the Antichrist coming, saying to them that dwell on the earth and they that should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, his image, and if you didn't worship, you'd be thrown into the fire furnace. And verse 16, and he will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man buy, uh, might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or his number of his name. Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 600, threescore, and 66. 666, okay. So the, the similarity is we, we see here, first of all, is verse 17 and 18, uh, pardon me, chapter 17, 18, religious and economic Babylon, verses 14 and 18 uh, through 18 of chapter 13, to bow down to the image of the beast, just like Daniel 3. But there's another one as we look at verse 18 here that says the number of the beast is 666. Now, I'm not gonna make too much of this. I just find this interesting. But how many sixes did we see in the Daniel chapter three? We saw uh, several. You saw that the statue was 60 cubits tall and six cubits wide. But where's the next six? There were six instruments listed over and over and over again in that chapter, six of them. It's kind of interesting. Um, I'm not making a huge thing of that. I just think it's interesting. It goes in the interesting category. Um, also, uh, check out Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 20. Who gets burned? Who gets burned? Um, uh, and then um, let's take a look. In Revelation 19, verse 20, flip your page around there. In Revelation 19, 20, it says this. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and uh, them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Um, so you gotta understand there's an unholy trinity of the tribulation. It's not, it's, it's, he's always a duplicator. He's an imitator, Satan. Satan's called the dragon in the book of uh, Revelation, the tribulation period. But the beast and the Antichrist are sort of that unholy trinity, if you would. Uh, the, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, I should say. What happens to these two guys? They're thrown into the fire. Who was burned in the story back in Daniel chapter three? The biggest, buffest, 
toughest Babylonian soldiers. They're the ones who got burned, okay? Are you guys with me so far? Who gets burned here? These two guys, not Satan. By the way, Satan gets burned in verse, chapter 20, verse 10. The devil that was deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone. There, the beast and the false prophet are, they're already there from chapter 19, and they'll be tormented there day and night forever and ever. That's interesting. Okay, so you got who uh, will be burned. It's the false prophet and the beast. Are you guys with me? There were a couple Babylonian soldiers that were burned. That brings the next question, who was saved in the story of Daniel 3? Who gets saved in the book of Revelation um, or, or in the end time scenario? Um, well, that's where we read Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Romans, remember it says, at the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, what happens to Israel? Anybody? All of Israel will be saved. You see, what's beautiful is the Jews get saved in the story. In the midst of the fiery furnace, they get saved. Just like the whole point of the tribulation is the Jews will be saved in the midst of the fiery trial of the tribulation period. Are you with me so far? So you've got these point for point matches. Um, now, um, we can sort of leave it there except for there's one problem. Where's Daniel in the story? Where's Daniel? Um, and people wonder, you know, and I've heard people stupidly say, well, Daniel must've just bowed down because he wasn't in the story. That's total craziness. And you'll see in the next chapters that why there's no way this is Daniel. And Daniel was the best of these guys uh, by uh, no question about that. Where was Daniel? I think that Daniel, uh, remember Daniel was put in charge of everything. It, you know, we don't know where Daniel is. He's, he's not mentioned in the story uh, here in Daniel chapter three. He's off somewhere else. Some people say maybe he's off on, you know, business uh, as the top guy, maybe he's off, you know, doing something from at some faraway place, but he's not there. And I believe that could be a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever you have the wrath judgment stories of the Old Testament that are pictures of the, the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world, there's always somebody who wasn't there. People try to say, well, Brett, you believe the church is not gonna go through the tribulation, but in, even in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, um, uh, God's wrath was poured out or, or, or what, like they try to give you examples. Um, you know, and by the way, who was it that God took out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, it would be Lot. He pulled them out before the wrath came down. Um, some people say, yeah, but bro, what about the story of Noah? Noah had to go through the tribulation uh, of the flood and he and his family were saved. Yes, beautiful picture of the Jews, how they're gonna be saved in the tribulation. Who was missing from the story of the flood? Anybody? Enoch, right before the flood, read the book of Genesis. The Lord saw this one dude who walked with God and pleased God, and so God raptured him, took him up, didn't see death, and he goes up and he's safe with the Lord. Then the flood comes and Noah and his family were saved through the flood. Same thing's gonna happen in the tribulation period. All the pictures perfectly align, and there's always someone who's taken up out before uh, the, the wrath is poured out. Are you guys with me on this? It's kind of an important thing. Um, so all this to say, and we could go on if, I, if, I, if we had the time, but um, there's, there's so much here. You can maybe do a little more digging. You'll see little nuances of chapter three that very much parallel and match the, the tribulation period, the fiery trial that's coming, and it's gonna save the Jews in the midst of the fiery trial. The church is not gonna be there because we're gonna be taken up to be with the Lord. Are we clear? Good, good, good. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for so great a story. These Daniel stories are classic and, and powerful. 
Um, Lord, give us the understandings we need. Help us to be like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, that we're bold and unafraid. Lord, give us the confidence in your word and in your truth. Show us, Lord, in these days what we're supposed to speak out about, what we're to be silent on. Show us the things that matter. Um, help your church to be bold in the things you want us to be bold in. Um, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't put our calling on everybody else because we think, Lord, sometimes everybody's called to the same thing, but I'm so thankful you use different people to carry different messages and you, you put different proclivities and powers on different people. And Lord, may we all use what you've given us rightly, each one of us doing our role that you've called us to, to do, Lord. So uh, give us wisdom in these days, Lord. We pray for those that are hurting and going through hard times. People that are losing their jobs and people that are sick and people that are uh, stuck in Afghanistan and people down in New Orleans that are hurting as the, this massive hurricane, uh, ho horrible damage. Lord, we just see so many people suffering and hurting, but we know that you care about all of these things. So do your will, work your will in our lives, Lord. May we be strong in these days we live. In Jesus' name, amen.